Welcome to this podcast by Global Church. We are a church planting movement wanting to reach cities from here to everywhere, one to everyone. If you want to find out more information, check out our website on www.globalchurch.co.uk. So I've been looking forward to speaking with you this week. Good morning to you all out there. I hope you're all able to hear me well and see me well because I've got a great message for you again this morning. And we're dealing with absolute truth. And what I mean by that is it's truth that never changes, no matter uh, where you live in the world and no matter what century you live in. Two and two always makes four. That will never change. That is absolute truth. And I'm bringing you absolute truth from the Bible. The Bible is God's revealed mind and emotions to this world. 95% of everything you're going to need to know about what God thinks about your life and how to live life is found in the Bible. And it was given orally. Eventually, God had it put down in writing, but it was given orally initially. And the Jews were a people that could memorise things. And many traditional people have, have got a, a tradition of memorising stories. And so they were kept sharp and, and kept faithful because of that. But later on, God had it wrote, uh, written down. He used ordinary men, uh, over 40 different writers to put the Bible together. And uh, they wrote uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 letters and stuff in the New uh, Testament. And so they were written over a period of about 1500 years. But one thing they had in common was they wrote about a living God. And the, the, the character of the God that they were writing about was consistent. And yet they never met, many of them never met each other. And so it's just an amazing thing. I'm going to bring that truth to you today. I can remember almost 40 years ago when I first became a believer, having to try and help myself and a, a bunch of punk rockers, a gang of punk rockers, to understand the Bible and understand salvation, that God wants to forgive us our sins, but he wants to restore all the things that sin and Satan has taken away from us. And he wants to put it back in us. And it's like you become a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come to us. And so this has been my passion for all my life. So hopefully I'm going to make it live for you today. And we're going to go through what, it, what God did to bring us salvation. So last week we were looking more about what God did on the inside of us. He made us new. He took away the old and he's made us new. But, uh, or should I put it like this? He cancelled the power of the old because it's still there. And he gave us the new creation. He gave us a new spirit within us. You know, a, a, a guy was, was once asked, he had two, two husky dogs and he was an Eskimo, I think it was. And they said, which of these two dogs would win in a fight and he said the one that you feed the most and and that's the true that that's true about you and I now we can either feed, feed our old life and our old ways our old way of thinking or we can feed the new and the one that will win is the one that we feed the most gosh it's going to be hot today <laughs> so in receiving eternal life what did God do and last week we looked and discovered that our salvation did not begin with us. God chose us. It began with Almighty God. He chose you and me because he loved us. 
Today we're going to look at what God did for you and me as an expression of that love. How did he express that love? Why did God have to send Jesus, his only begotten son, to be our saviour? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just say a prayer or say something religious all over us and we'd be all okay? So we're going to look at that today. It's important that we understand these things. Jesus told a parable of, of a sower, a farmer sowing seed. And he, see, he said seed fell on the path and it was hard was the path because it's been trodden. So the seed couldn't get down. And the interpretation of that uh, later on, as Jesus discussed it with his disciples was, because people didn't understand, the devil comes and robs the word because they didn't understand. And I want you to understand. I love teaching you because you're a new church and it's like reaching a new tribe. And, you know, some of you have said, I didn't even know Jesus was coming back. <laughs> it's beautiful. There's basic to Christianity, but you didn't know the basics because we haven't, we haven't spoken about it. That's why I've done some training and teaching on it. But now we're looking at what God did in order to bring us salvation. God's act of choosing you would not have been enough to restore you back to himself. He had to do something else. The cause of separation between uh, us and God had to be removed. There was a blockage. And you know, whenever there's a blockage, you've just got to get it sorted. God had to find a way of making you and me right with him without lowering his standards. Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 1 to 9, it says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, in other words, justified, made right with God through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe today you have no peace. And I want to say, come to Jesus Christ, have faith in him. And that will make you right with God. And miraculously, you'll have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith again into this grace in which we now stand. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And we rejoice, that's eternal life. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. The Holy Spirit, it's important to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. God imparts everything that we need through the Holy Spirit. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a key verse in Romans chapter 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. Still sinners. He saw us at our worst and he was still willing to go to the cross. Since we now have been justified, made right with God, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath and judgment through Jesus? So I want you to know it all started with God. We were created by him, but we were created for him. 
And once you get that sorted out in your mind, you realise he's not there for you, you're there for him. And I know it sounds a bit wrong way around, but we were created for his pleasure. And he is there for you, by the way. But so often we tell him what to do, but we're supposed to be told by him what to do. We're his subjects, he's the king, if I can put it like that. So in Genesis chapter 1, and he's a good king, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, empowered them, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And so God created us in his image, like him. And that doesn't mean that we look like him. Being created in his image means that we're like him. We're called to be leaders. He's empowered us to be leaders, to be rulers, to be problem solvers, to be providers, to be visionaries. Ask yourself, what are you like? Because that's how Adam was and Eve. And, you know, we've fallen. They fell in the Garden of Eden and we fell with them. And it's been passed on to generation. And now all those things that God put in us to be as human beings has been fractured and decimated. And Jesus wants to give us a, give it us all back. So we become visionary leaders. Then we become problem solvers, not wimping around and saying, why isn't the government doing this for me? Why is, I can't believe the government doesn't do that for me. Forget it. You're meant to make it happen. You become the change. That's what it's like to be in God's image. There's hope because God empowers us and you don't have to be brilliant or bright. You know, God can use any turnip for an head. You know, we just, he, he needs, what he's looking for is willingness. He's looking for availability rather than ability. So anyway, Genesis chapter two, it said, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And I want you to, to know these things and read Genesis and know where you've come from. We come from him. We came through our parents. Genesis two fifteen and 17, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is before man sinned. God wanted man to, to be working and he was doing manual work. And we have reduced manual work in the church as kind of, oh yeah, no, that's a good job you've got. You, you know, it's almost like, well, we don't do manual work anymore because we're so sophisticated. But God designed men to work with their hands. And so he commanded man. So Lord God put him in the, in the Garden of Eden to work it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. That's a great phrase. That's like God. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree. Just nudge somebody and say, any tree. That's the bigness of God. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will die. And you know, that's the bigness of God you can have. You can have it all, but he gave them one prohibition, one do not. And it's like a loving father saying to a son, we live in York and in the city of York, there's a big river going through. It's called the River Ouse. And sometimes it rises within space of a day, two days, 15 feet. It goes, it floods. 
You know, and a, a wise dad would say to his son or his daughter, stay away from the river when it's in flood. Stay away from the river anyway, but stay away from the river when it's in flood. That's not a spoil sport. That's somebody telling you something that's dangerous. Stay away from it. But you know, God was so big hearted. He said, but all the other trees you can eat from. Great permission giver. Then the Lord created the woman from the side of man. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the, uh, from the Lord amongst the trees. And I'm, I'm, I've put that, that scripture in Genesis chapter 2 still. I've, I've put that in because it shows that there was a habit of God walking with them in the garden. And Adam and Eve would run to them, would run to him. But you know, this day they didn't. They ran and hid when they heard him walking in the garden. And it's almost like watching a whodunit or a, a murder mystery. At this point, the film director goes back in time and says, some years earlier, this is what happened. And it says, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? And that's exactly what Satan does constantly. He always throws doubt on God's word. You can go and hear a great preach on Sunday and be built up. By, but by the end of the day, Satan... Well, it might not be him, it might be one of his, his workers, one of the angels that fell with him, uh, rebelled against God. But they come as demons now and they come to us and they speak into our minds and say, God's not going to do that, you know, you're not going to get healed. God's not going to provide this. And they wear us down and we've got to keep coming to God's word to be strengthened. He said, did, did God really say, and here where he changes the word, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? in the garden. Can you see how Satan uses the same words but moves them around and he changes God's word, changes the meaning of what God says. Instead of God being this magnificent God who's saying you can eat from any tree, he makes God look like he's peevish and small and mean. And he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So the woman then's on the back foot and she's going like, um, she wants to defend God. So she says, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Well done, Eve. And then she says this, and you must not touch it. That's not what God said. Now she's adding to God's word. And, he said, and she says, if you touch it, you will die. Satan comes along and he says, you certainly won't die. Now he's taking something from God's word. You certainly won't die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll have a light bulb moment and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you know they were already like God? They were made in God's image. And he's such a messer with your mind. But he's taken away from God's word. Three rules about when you read the Bible. Add nothing to it, take nothing from it and change nothing in it. And anybody that does that, give them a wide berth. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to, to her husband who was with her and he should have done something about that serpent. Watch out for, for men who are just sitting on sofas watching telly or playing games. They're not the marrying type. You need somebody who's going to be with you and watching out for you. And Adam should have stepped in 
and close that serpent down. But anyway, you missed it. Adam ate the fruit along with his wife. Then, but then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now we've come back into the film again. We've caught up and now we, we understand why they've been hiding. It's because they've sinned. But the Lord God called out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Do you think God doesn't know where Adam is? Of course he does. He knows everything. But he wants Adam to know where he is. Adam, what have you just done? Where are you? Adam's going to be thinking, I've been running away from God. In the past, I used to run to him. I've done something wrong, haven't I? Things are not the same between me and God. Am I speaking to anybody this morning? Things are not the same between me and God as they were. There's a distance. I've got to shrink that distance. And it's simple. You're a prayer away from shrinking that distance. God called to the man, Adam, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Genesis 3.23, so the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the garden of Eden and we've been banished from his presence ever since. And scholars call this the fall, where we were kings and queens, God's kings and queens to rule on earth, his vice regents, if I can put it in old language. We were meant to rule on his behalf on, on the earth. And we have fallen from our kingship and our standing. And we've fallen to becoming beggars, we've been fearful people, lack of confidence, all sorts of things have been robbed from us. When Adam fell, we were in Adam and we fell. We're going to find out. Adam and Eve didn't die physically when they took the fruit. They died spiritually. They were separated from God. Adam and Eve's sin has polluted the whole human race. You know, it's like, it's like when you do the whites in the washing. You know, I'm speaking to the men now. It's an equal society. And you put a red sweatshirt in or something like that on all the whites become red because you've put the wrong thing in and the dye's gone into the others. And they still look at the same shape, but the colour has changed. What they're filled with now is a dye that's spoilt everything and sin has spoilt everything in our lives. It's touched every area of our lives. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people. That's why we die, because all have sinned. We've been poisoned. Every one of us now has been poisoned. Every person in every generation has been poisoned by Adam's sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard or God's glory. And King David, writing centuries later, demonstrates that he understood that sin is passed on from generation to generation. You know, before we've sinned, before we've done anything wrong, we've still got sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Yeah. Psalm 51 verses 3 to 5. King David said this after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
and then had her, wife, her husband murdered to try and cover it all up and it all went wrong for him. He said, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth. Then he goes further back. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Sin was passed on generation to generation. But he looked forward, even in that song, to God doing a miracle. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that's the cry of the human heart. We know we're wrong. We don't need to be told we're wrong. We're only beating down. What we need is lifting up. And that's what I want to do today is, is telling you why you, I'm not trying to explain why things are like they are, but also saying, but with God, he can create in us a new art. He can give us a new start, just a new start in life, but a new life to start with. Habakkuk 1.13 says about God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. That's amazing. Isaiah 59 verse 2, Isaiah said, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's the state of mankind. So how could there ever be that closeness again? Or friendship, the Bible calls it fellowship. Friendship with God again. Well, there is a solution. And I'm coming in now to the end of my talk. I don't have much time left. (laughs) The solution, even though God loves you and me, he couldn't turn a blind eye to our sin. Sin always has to be paid for. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. And I like the second part of that verse. It says, but, there's always hope when you see but in the Bible, but the gift of God is eternal life through his son, Jesus. We were spiritually bankrupt, but Jesus came and paid the price. So God sent his only son to pay the price for every human being, not just your friends and people that are nice sinners, but the most decrepit sinners the most evil sinners, the price that's been paid. That is the the shock of God's amazing grace. Romans chapter five, verse six, it says, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The price of this solution is that blood must be shed. Why blood? Again, why couldn't God just say something religious over us? But God introduced the idea of the shedding of blood right in the Old Testament when he was bringing Israel from out of slavery to an evil king. Uh, He was setting them free from the power of Pharaoh, an evil king in Egypt. And he brought them out. And this is what he said uh, to Moses. He said, tell the whole community. This is Exodus chapter 12. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be one-year-old males without defect, and that can be a sheep or a goat. And they weren't little little lambs. When the Bible talks about lambs, it was a one-year-old lamb. That meant it was in its prime. It was a full-grown ram. It was more of a ram than a lamb, but it was in the prime of its life. You've got to understand that, because later on we're going to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, at 33 years old in the prime of his life, becoming the lamb that was slain. Can you see? But God was building up the picture in the Old Testament. And he said, 
Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the, on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. And he says, and then when on the night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of the people and the animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, he said, but when I see the sign that the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel at the top, he said, then I will pass over you and no destructive plague will come and touch you when I strike Egypt. Um, you know, when God says he's going to do it, he usually does it through somebody else like the angel of death or whatever. And that's what happened. This pointed forwards to God's unfolding plan of salvation. And it created in the minds of the Jews the idea of a lamb that was slain, a sacrificial lamb. They call it the Paschal lamb. John the Baptist got hold of this and he saw Jesus. And in, in John chapter 1, verse 29, says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said to everybody, look, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And later God taught Israel in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the fuller meaning behind the shedding of blood. And he said this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that's why God couldn't just say a religious thing over us. The price had to be paid and the life is in the blood. And so blood had to be shed. The law of Moses insists that the penalty of your sin and my sin is death. The one who sins is the one who will die, he said. And Jesus is the only sinless man that ever lived. And he had to take your place and my place and to suffer in order to save us and bring us back to God saving us from sin but bringing us back to God and it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we're saved it's not about our good works it's not about being a good person it's not about having good morals it's about admitting you're not good enough that takes humility we need God to help us to humble ourselves and we need God to help us to believe I've got to come in now and in 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 it says but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin so when we meet as a church often we can come all bent out of shape but sometimes we come like that but we go out and we're, we've, we're at peace we feel clean something has happened and that's because invisibly what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago still has an effect and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. It's beautiful. Don't miss church. Because <laughs> church isn't the building. And it's not a register being took. It's about coming together and meeting with the invisible God. We can't see him. But he transforms us when we're there. And he's going to be doing that even when I'm talking today. He'll be lifting burdens off you. You'll be going home today different from when you came. We are justified by his blood. That means... We are made right with God by his blood. Jesus came along and he saw all our debt of sin and he discharged the debts on the cross and declared in a loud voice, it is finished. The work of salvation, paying the price and everything for our sins has been completed. All we have to do is believe. And God even gives us faith to do that. Beautiful. Romans chapter five, verse eight says this. 
since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Made right with God because of Jesus' blood. It's the resurrection that lets us know that God accepted the sacrifice. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. A dead Jesus is no help, but he was raised to life for our justification. What should our response be? The cross of Jesus is God's supreme act of love. You know, somebody once said, somebody was trying to explain to a young kid, how do we know, how much does God love us? God loves us? And he says, in Jesus, he stretched out his arms and he said, this watch. Well, let me just say this. A man stood before the judge and he was found guilty. This is how the story goes. And although an old friend of the judge, he was down on his luck, but the judge didn't treat his friend lightly, but fined him as heavily as he could. The man was shocked, as was the whole court, at how intense, like he's just he's thrown the book at him, really. Then the judge got up and took off his judge's gown and stepped down from the seat of authority, and he paid the man's debt in full. At the cross, God the judge stepped down from the bench and paid your debt in the blood of Jesus. That's what grace is all about. What should our response be? Well, I have it here in an old hymn. It's an awesome hymn. And it says this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things, empty things vain, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns, thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We can't buy our faith. We can't try and be good. We just receive it. He has done it all for us. That's why Jesus is Lord and all the vain things that charm me most. You know, I sacrifice them to his blood. And if all the, the whole realm of nature, if it was mine, it would be too small a gift, a present, an offering to give him. No, his blood demands my life, my soul, my life, my all, and he demands yours. So you need to just throw yourself right in the deep end of God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness and acceptance. Get a bath in the stuff and give him your all and just say, God, what you want from me. I'm here to do your will. And that's when you'll be the most happiest in life. Put God first. Ask him where he wants you to live. Ask him, before you buy an house, ask him, is this the right place for me, Lord? You know, talk to God. Get him involved. Say, Lord, where do you want me? I've given you my life. You've been bought with a great price, the precious blood of Jesus. 
From the team here at Global Church, thank you for listening to this podcast. Please check out our other messages available on the website 